So we've been going through this series, a simple question, a simple Christmas, and we're on our third question. Um, you know why? You know why did he do it? Why did he come? And and just to review, you know, we've been going over the simple questions: Who is Jesus? And and the answers we we have from the Word of God is that you know he's the Son of God. He's the Word became flesh. He's he's the Savior of the world. And then we talked for a couple of weeks about what did he come to do, and what he came to do was to give us peace with God to help us who are enemies of God to no longer be enemies of God. He came to save us. He came to you know, lead and protect us as we saw last week and lead us in the sense of showing us how we should live. And then this week, we're asking the question, you know, why did he come? Why did he come? And so last week we we had the first part of that, and why did, why did he come? Well, because we rejected God. We rejected God. We rebelled against God. We, you know, we became his enemies, and then we replaced God. And in so doing, we trapped ourselves in our own sin nature. We couldn't escape. We became slaves to our own sin, our own selfishness, our own fears, our own pride. And so we were trapped. And so we talked about last week about that's why he came and what he came to do was to free us. Free us from that trap. Free us from that sin. And, you know, we kind of sang about that today and previous weeks. There's another reason that he came, and we're going to talk about that today. You know, we've been using the Charlie Brown Christmas as kind of like the, the background for all of this, and, and uh, I don't know if you guys have been able to watch it recently, um, but, um, you know, one of the things we know, that, know about Charlie Brown is, you know, Charlie Brown is, is portrayed as the gloomy kid, the kid who, you know, who's just... You know, always thinking about, you know, the glass is half empty kind of kid. And he's bugged about Christmas. But we realize as we're watching it that he's the one who's getting it right. He realizes there's something more than just personal happiness. There's something more than just, you know, just getting caught up in the excitement of the time. He doesn't know what it is. He's looking for it. He's searching for it. But he knows that there's something more. Well, you know, the one thing about the Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang is they've been around for, you know, I think about at least uh, 50 years, probably more like 70 years now. And the thing about it is they've never grown up. If you read, you know, Peanuts comics today, they're, they're still kids. And I remember reading one time a kind of a spoof on Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang about what would happen if they grew up. Like, and, you know, um, Lucy and Charlie are married, but, you know, Charlie is... Uh, miserable because Lucy's always bullying him and picking on him, and she's actually wanting to get together with Schroeder. 
And, you know, there was, but we saw them as adults. We saw them, you know, grown up in, in like having jobs and things like that. And I was, you know, thinking when I was a kid, I never really thought about that. They were just cartoons and I would just read them. Well, I think we sometimes treat people that way. We, we see people, we relate to them in just one way. And then we don't realize that there's more to them than what, what we know. Like maybe, you know, your parents, you know, you, you know, you knew dad is dad and mom is mom. And you never saw them in any other context. But maybe you, you did at one point. Maybe at some point you saw them at their job. And you realize that their job, there's a whole different, you know, view of them that you, you didn't know. You know, maybe you had an old classmate that you remember, kind of like the Peanuts gang when they were young, and you haven't seen them for years, and maybe they were a little bit goofy, you know, didn't, you know, not the, you know, the best student, whatever, and then you run into them later and, and you see, wow, there's a lot more going on there. I, I you know, I taught long enough now you know, when I first started teaching back in the 90s, I'm, I've taught long enough where my, I get to see how well or how not well some of my students turned out. And there's always like, like the surprise, like, you're a doctor? You know, you, you couldn't spell doctor, and now you're a doctor. It's amazing. Um, you know, we see them, and, and we look, and we, we realize that Whatever we thought they were, that part that we were relating with them, that they were, they were much more. And, and we defined who they were just simply because of our interaction with them. You know, I think we do the same thing with God. We, we end up with a small view of God. Oh, we may think he's big. We may think he's big, because he's bigger than us, but we're thinking of everything purely in our relationship to him. And we end up with a small God. And in some ways we like that. We want the God who's like the shepherd holding the lamb. You know, that's the kind of God we want. We want the God that, that carries us when we're, when we're hurting and, you know, someone that we can talk to, but then... We can, then it kind of leaves us alone the rest of the time. We almost get the idea like, like I don't know if you were this way, but, but you know, when I was in um, elementary school, I remember the first time I saw one of my elementary school teachers not in the classroom, like out in the store with her kids. And it kind of freaked me out because... At that time, I just thought, like, she lived at the school. I thought, like, when we all left, she just went into the closet or something and waited until we came the next day. And then to suddenly see, like, wow, she has a whole life. And she's got, you know, kids and all this other stuff. It was like, it was just like, no, 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 no. You, you're my teacher. And we want to do that with God. We, we want God just to take care of us, and then when we don't need him, he just sits around waiting for us to call. 
He's just sitting by the phone waiting for us to say, oh God, I need your help again. And we like that kind of God. But let me just tell you, it's not the kind of God we find in the Bible. What we find in the Bible is we find a God-sized God. You see, if we do not have a God-sized God, we can never understand his God-sized plan. He will always be this small God, this God that's my God or my group, you know, you know, you know our group, you know, we, we've got this God and he's, he's personal to us. And make no mistake, the Bible presents God as a personal God, but he's more than that. He's more than that. He is a God-sized God with a God-sized plan. And you go, well, why do I need to care about that? Why, why, why should I, you know, fine, he's got his plans, let him go do his stuff. Why should I care? Well, the reason you should care is because when God calls us to him, when we come to him through Jesus Christ and he saves us, it is so that we can be a part of his God-sized plan. It is not simply so that we know when we die we can go be with God. It is not simply to be, you know, we're, while we're here that we have the shepherd who looks after us when we get lost and we get in trouble. He wants you to be part of his God-sized plan. But again, so many times we insist on keeping God small. Because if I keep him small, then I don't really have to think too much. I just have to kind of get through. I just have to, you know, I can, you know, do the things that everybody else does and then throw a little God in once in a while. No. He has a God-sized plan. We're going to read from the letter to the church at Ephesus. And Paul's writing, he's writing to this church. And, you know, this church is largely made up of Gentiles. We don't have a lot of Jewish people in this church. Um, we have some, and we have some that are ethnically Jewish, but had been, become more culturally um, like Greek or Roman. But one of the things that seems to be bugging and Paul knows this church better than any other church. He's been, he spent three years with this church. That's longer, that's twice as long as the next longest church that he spends time with. And he knows this church, and he knows one of the things that bugs them is this feeling that, you know, God, when we look at the Hebrew scriptures, it just says God, you know, chose his people and it's Israel and you know those are his people 
And yet they, they have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they know now that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the group, but they feel like they're kind of like just add-ons. You know, it's like when you get that wedding invitation the day before the wedding. Yeah, you probably weren't on the first list. You know, there were probably enough, no, I can't make it, that says, well, we paid for the food anyways. Might as well invite them. I mean, that's kind of the feeling. Ah, you're happy to be there, but really? And one of the big points of, of what we're going to read today and really of, of, of the letter to the Ephesians is you were always in the mind of God. God's plan has always been from the very beginning, had always been to call all people to himself, to have a kingdom made up of every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation. There are no walls. You're not plan B. And so we come to this letter and and right off the bat, you know, Paul is doing what he usually does in letters. He usually gives some kind of like praise and then, you know, talks about, um, you, know, the, you know, some situations that they're dealing with. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he starts out this this letter with this sentence. And by the way, in Greek, and I think in some of your English translations, this is one long sentence. It's really long. And so in this sentence, he, he, just, he just right up front tells them, tells them that you are predestined before the foundations of the world We have always been God's plan. And don't take that word we, don't take that word we lightly. Paul is Jewish. He's a Jewish person who had been trained to be a Pharisee. When he says we, he's talking what he's he's really giving us a strong statement to what he's going to say later. That what Jesus Christ has come to do is to tear down the walls. Tear down the wall between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. We have always been 
God's plan. Always. You're not plan B. You're not the backup. You're not, hey, you know, um, couldn't get enough of the Israelites, you know, so hey, you know, why don't you guys show up? God has always planned. He has always planned that his people, that his kingdom would be from every tribe, every race, every nation. It's so much bigger. He's not coming just to be the shepherd of you or the shepherd of me. He came to establish a kingdom. And when we think about kingdom, you know, we think about, well, okay, then, you know, who's in charge? You know, who, you know who's, who's reigning and everybody thinks about, oh, you know, are we going to reign? Uh, yes and no. But if we believe God is love, what do we think his kingdom is going to be like? It's so weird. When I, you know, I see people, they're like, they, they understand God is love, but whenever they start thinking about God's kingdom, they think it's some kind of like, something that's built on force and power. It's like, no, that's how earthly kingdoms are formed. That's the only reason we can keep human societies together. It is only for brief moments in time have, have we been able to have you know, human communities thrive without some kind of leadership, without some kind of rules, without some kind of enforcement. God's kingdom is different. If God is love, what do you think his kingdom is going to be like? And if God's love is extended, expressed to the world, why do we sometimes think like, like it's only extended to like certain types of people? Why do so many churches work? And I'm not saying they work like overtly and even work consciously. But why do so many churches work to be filled with people who are just like the rest of the people? I think it was Billy Graham who said, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That you can go, you know, across the United States and you can find, you know, churches that are largely, you know, based on ethnicity. Why? It's because you have a small God. You, you have a God who's not powerful enough to overcome cultural differences. You have a spirit that's not able to help us overcome generational differences. See, in Hawaii, we like to kind of think we're better because if you look around this room, we're pretty ethnically diverse. 
But what happens in Hawaii is you start to have generational things. You have churches that are, you know, not insulting you. I'm just reporting. Don't shoot the messenger. But people like to say, Wildlife Baptist Church is an old people's church. Yeah. And I got to say, there's some evidence of that. You know, five years ago when I started here, one of the things that was said to me, and I, by the way, at the time I was 50 years old, several members of the church said, we are so glad we're getting a young pastor. But see, there's people that, that they'll come here and they'll never come back because when they look around, there's not other 20-somethings or 30-somethings or 40-somethings. They're not looking for the Spirit of God. They're not looking for the Word proclaimed. They're not looking for authentic worship, authentic community. What they're looking for is people just like them. And you know what? I don't know how many of us are are different. We have a small God. We have a God who can't possibly overcome all of these differences. And if we have a small God, we will always have a church that has a small view of what God's plan is. His plan is so much bigger. If we're to represent the kingdom, then we need to show that not just can we all be in the same room, but that we can be diverse and we can be truly united. We can truly be a community that's bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ, our love for God, and our love for one another. God's plan. It's always been God's plan. I'm glad that we've kind of left some of the ridiculous of ridiculousness of the kind of latter part of the 20th century behind us. Because I'm going to tell you, what we have now in the church is an improvement. But those of you who lived through the 80s and 90s, you know that one of the, one of the major things that was taught to young pastors. This is what was taught to young pastors. If you want to go start churches, the big fancy name was called the Homogenous Church Growth Movement. And let me just tell you, the Homogenous Church Growth Movement is not from the Bible. Homogenous means same. And so what they would tell young pastors, they'd say, you need to go to a community of people just like you and build your church that way. Build your church based on some common interests. No. We're called to build a diverse church based on Jesus Christ, united by His Spirit. And so you had... You know, you had people going to, you know, going to places, you know, I got to find if, you know, I, if, if I'm a, 
you know, 20 something, you know, Caucasian, I got to go find that community and start my church there. Because that's, that's, who, that's who I'm going to connect with. If I'm, in, you know, in my 30s or 40s, I got some kids, I got to go find some suburban community because that's, that's what I got to do. And some of you might remember this, but it got so silly, and there still are churches like this, sadly, that they started to, to like, build around interests. There, was, there were churches that were called skater churches, and they were for people in the skateboard culture. You know, there were, you know, you still have some in Texas. They're called cowboy churches. And again, built around some kind of cowboy Western culture. And that's just a couple. I told you when we were trying to help our church be what we thought all churches should be, which is welcoming and inclusive of special needs community, that there, our biggest fear is that we would be labeled as a special needs church. And we were. We weren't a special needs church. We were a church that was doing what all churches should do, which is not create barriers for people because of their life situation, but be open and welcoming as much as we can to help, help them be a part of the community. But we were immediately labeled a special needs church. When we have a heritage that actually strategizes about breaking up the church around common interests, man, we've got a lot to overcome. It's always been God's plan. A God-sized God says, I will call all people unto me. We read from Revelation, and earlier in Revelation, you know, before it's talking about, you know, that, you know, the place that will be forever, it talks about who will be there. And it's always every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And you might go, well, you know what? I don't, uh, I would never, I would never forbid someone from coming to this church because they were different from me. Well, you know, that's good. That's good. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to say, I don't forbid someone. What we need to ask ourselves is, do we welcome people? Do we welcome people who are different from us? Or when we see someone different from us, does it kind of make us go, I hope someone else welcomes them. I hope someone else is their friend. I'm sure they'll connect with somebody else in our church. Or do we welcome them? I said this a few years ago. I'll say it again. You know what would be an interesting experiment? That each of us would think about the person who regularly comes to our church who is most different from you 
and you just send him a note, give him a call, say, let's go have coffee. Oh, wait, you don't like coffee? All right, we'll drink tea. Whatever, right? It's not enough just to say, I don't have anything against people different from me. Do we welcome people? Especially those who are different. The second thing that it says here, which I love, it says we've been adopted. Through Jesus Christ, we've been adopted. We've been saved to be part of his family. See, this is more than just some, some like, oh, yeah, this general, oh, yeah, God is bringing together people, and, you know, that's all great. He says, we've been adopted to be part of his family. And I know some people, you know, they don't have great family lives, and so they, you know, they don't necessarily have a positive view of family, but just understand when he says you've been adopted to be part of his family, he's talking about it in the family as it was intended to be. This family of people who, who love one another, who are connected to one another, who want the best for each other. He's talking about this group of people who know each other. And when it talks about he's adopted you, you know, there's no question God knows us. But when he says he's adopted you, he saying he wants you to know him. He wants to be known by you. It's family. It's a family. And, and when you really understand family, what you understand is, you know, f- what family ties should do is, is they, they overcome so many things. It's, it's what the world has always understood. You know, it's, we see it in not the greatest light, but, you know, one of the ways you, you make friends with the neighboring king is have his daughter marry your son. It's these family ties, they, they matter. And he's using this to talk about what he's going to talk about in chapters 2 and 3 where he says, this wall has been torn down. You're no longer to define yourself by these, these, these limitations, these boundaries, these barriers that human beings have, have put up. No, you define yourself by who you are in Christ, that you're all sons and daughters in the same family. You're, you're, you're one. And so that's what happens at every level, what Jesus Christ came to do. What he came to do at every level is tear down those walls, tear them down at the, at the level of the family, tear them down at the level of the church, tear them down at the level of the kingdom. There are no walls. We are family. 
And then you see this last part. And we realize that this, this shepherd, he's not just this kindly shepherd who takes care of his, his helpless sheep. But he says, he says, which he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his promise, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things. To unite all things. And just in case you missed it, he says, things in heaven and things on earth. And that's a way of saying all things. Not just some things, not just a huge majority of things, but all things. Jesus came to bring unity to all things. Understand, your Savior is not a small Savior, a small God who's just here to help your life. Yes, He does that, but He's so much bigger. He's not come just to make your life better and your relationships better. He's come to unite all things. As I've said several times, quoting C.S. Lewis, he is not a tame lion. He is not your personal God that you get to put on your shelf. When you say, Jesus Christ, you are my Savior and my Lord, you are connecting yourself to the one who will unite all things. You've attached yourself to the divine plan for all creation. You're not just jumping on the bus to ride. All things. This is our Lord. And let me help you understand, when it talks about unity, when it says it's united in him. It's also talking about this idea, which is maybe a better word for us. It's talking about harmony. Harmony. If we were to use kind of a mechanical idea, it's talking about everything works the way it's supposed to work, the way God designed it. You know, like you know when your car is not in harmony. Not everything does what it's supposed to do. Well, it's talking about not just unity. It's talking about harmony. When Matt read earlier, he's reading what, you know, what the angels say, and he's talking, he's, he's reading about, they're saying, peace on earth. Again, it's the idea of, of Harmony. Human beings are relating to one another the way that they were designed and created to relate to one another before the fall, before the corruption of sin, before the rebellion. When you think about the word harmony, you understand it's not a unity that's forced. True harmony 
means that something about us has to have been changed. Something about us, as long as we hold on to selfishness, you can never have true harmony. You can never have lasting harmony. You may have harmony for a little while, but as long as that selfishness is there, as long as that sin nature is there, that harmony is temporary at best. We, we need to be changed. You see, when he unites all things to himself, it's not that he just brings together everything and then, okay, you guys all play nice now. No. It's this picture, especially when we think about humanity. It's this picture that, that he is not just bringing us together, but he is now in us. And the harmony we have is because his spirit in me connects with his spirit in you. And yeah, there's still the idiot me still saying stupid things, still being, you know, selfish and angry. But his spirit in me is connecting with his spirit in you. And if we have a God-sized God, His Spirit, His Spirit will overwhelm. His Spirit will prevail over all my immaturity, over my continued, you know, wanting to do things my way. And His Spirit will prevail over yours. I'm not going to talk about this, but just understand, he says all things. I'm focusing more on just us as human beings, but he says all things. And what he means by this is that all of creation, all of creation, from the human beings to every other bit of creation, will be good. Because that's how God created it. He created it. And he called it good. It will all be as he created. Understand, why did Jesus come? He came as part of this divine plan. God's plan is bigger than you and me. But make no mistake, it includes you and me. It includes all of us who believe in Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus, when we call upon Him as Savior and Lord, we are joining the God-sized plan. Without a God-sized God, we cannot understand His God-sized plan. I cannot tell you enough that we need to be students of His Word so that we understand more of who he is, but we also understand more about what he came to do. I pray that as God reveals that to you more and more through your study, through your knowledge, through your life, through your prayer, that your view of who God is will continue to grow closer and closer
to who he truly is and we'll understand his plan and we'll seek to do our part better. Let's pray.